The following audio is from Story City Church in Burbank, California. For more information on Story City, go to storycitychurch.com. Well, if you happen to bring a Bible today, go ahead and open it up to Luke chapter 6. Luke chapter 6 is our text this morning. By the way, doesn't our creative team do a great job? They always do a fantastic job. Give it up for those guys. Do a great, great job. And so uh, we're in a series now. We uh, skipped last week. If you were here last week, we had a friend in town. And uh, so we skipped over the second week. But we're in a new series called Basic Training. And uh, we're still in the book of Luke. If you've been around here for a couple months now, we started in Luke in, in August. And we're making our way this year through the book of Luke. And, and so we've come into a, a set of passages, a set of teachings here in the book of Luke chapter 6. And we have previously seen all the people that Jesus has called to himself, the people that he's asked to follow him. And so the previous scenes before we get to Luke chapter six here, Jesus has asked 12 men to be his apostles, to follow him, to announce and authenticate the message of God, the kingdom of God. And then there's other men and women who are following him as well. And so after those people have come to him and answered that call, I believe we've got a little bit of feedback. We're working on that. And so, um, and so as they've come to him, Jesus is now training them. He's training them in the basics of what it means to be a, a follower and a pursuer of Jesus. And so it's important as we work through this passage today that we see and understand the context of what's happening here. These are people that Jesus is literally prepping. He's preparing to go in, to, to dive into ministry. And the context of what he's talking about here uh, is going to be extraordinary. This is one of the most difficult teachings that Jesus will teach throughout all of his ministry. And, um, and so before we dive into Luke chapter 6, starting in verse 27, let me just pray for our time together as we read the scriptures. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for today. God, I pray that you just take our moments together that we have as we open up the scriptures and open up the word of God, and you would speak to us, Lord. God, may the loudest voice that's heard in these next few moments be the words that we read from the pages of Scripture, God. And would you take those, Lord, and penetrate our hearts and speak deeply to us, Lord. We need to hear from you today. In Jesus' name we pray. Everybody said amen and amen. Have you ever been in public, in a public environment? Maybe it's a sporting event. Uh, maybe it's an event like this. And somebody just makes a fool of themselves. You ever been in one of those environments like, oh my gosh, I'm embarrassed for that person. You know what I'm talking about? Recently, I was at a sporting event where one of my kids were playing. And uh, this dad begins to shout out loud. Now, we're not, in, we're not at a UCLA basketball game. We're in a small gym. There's 40 people around. And this dad begins to shout. He's like shouting. And everything in the gym stops. And everybody's watching this guy. And he's shouting at the coach because his son's playing basketball. He doesn't know, his son doesn't know what he's doing. And so the dad says, it's the coach's responsibility. Hey, coach, he doesn't know what he's doing. Tell him what to do. And you're like, oh, my gosh. <laughs> you know, you, um, there's a moment where you feel bad for the kid. And then you, and you're just like, oh, my gosh, this guy not, not know? I mean, what he's doing, this is crazy. And so he gets up from the, you know, several parents are like, oh, my gosh. And they're around him. They're like, this is unacceptable. So he gets up. He goes and stands in another part of the gym. After the game, he, he bolts over to the coach. He bolts over to the coach. And there's still people in the gym. And he's like, me to you. Like, he didn't have any space. He's like, me to you. And he's pointing at the guy. He's like, you don't. And he's shouting, you don't talk to me like that. You're like, wow. And then he leaves the gym. And then he comes back in again. And he's talking to other people. He's talking to them. And he's looking at the coach. And he's talking really loud so everybody can hear him. And then he leaves the gym. 
And then he comes back in again. You're like, what is wrong with this guy? And so the parents at this point, this wasn't our team. This was another team. But, and so at, the, at that point, the parents are like, you know what? We're done. He, they're, they're off the team. They literally told him, you're off the team. Don't come back. You can't come back again. So he leaves the gym and parents are following because we, you know, this situation is getting volatile. And so he's walking away to his car. And as he's walking away, he's turning back. And he's just he's shouting. And I feel sorry for you. And it's like, what it just happened? You think of that. And I think of this teaching that Jesus is about to walk us into in Luke chapter 6. Isn't there a lot of opportunity to be angry in our world today? So many opportunities to be angry in our world. Angry at Democrats or what's happening right now. Angry at a president for what he's being accused of. Angry at the media for things they're saying. Angry at, who knows, militant movements that are happening. Angry at a family member for something they've said to you. Angry at somebody who's mistreated you. Angry at somebody who's taken something from you. There's just so many opportunities in our world to be angry at someone. And for some of us, as we think about these thoughts and and all these people we have the opportunity to be angry at, for some of us, it reminds us of one or many, multiple enemies in our lives. These enemies in our lives, and we wonder as we think about this guy who's making a fool of himself and shouting at everybody, how can I really love someone like that as Jesus commands me to do? What does that even look like? How does that even happen? And so we have to remember here in Luke chapter six, Jesus is training men and women for ministry and for days ahead. And there's going to be plenty of opportunities for the days ahead where these men and women are doing ministry, even within their own community of believers. There's going to be many opportunities and many realities where people will become enemies. And so Jesus is training them. He's preparing them to do something unexpected And he's preparing them to do something completely unnatural, and it looks a little bit like what he did for us. And he's going to say, you must love your enemies. And so today, as we consider this topic of loving our enemies, Luke chapter 6, starting in verse 27, we're going to see this is one of the most difficult teachings that Jesus is, is going to teach throughout all of his ministry. This is a really incredibly difficult passage to internalize for all of us here today. But I hope it's going to be good. Luke chapter 6, starting in verse 27. This is what the scripture said. But to you who are listening, this is Jesus talking, but to you who are listening, I say, love your what? Enemies. Close. Neighbors is close. That's all right. It's on the screen right there. But to you who are listening, I say, love your enemies. So who are my enemies? I think all of us have this natural idea of who an enemy could possibly be. Some of you probably even have an enemy in your mind. But I want you to listen to the definition that a man by the name of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who wrote an incredibly uh, inspiring book called The Cost of Discipleship, listen to how he describes who your enemy is. He says, in the New Testament, our enemies are those who harbor hostility against us. Now listen to this. Not those against whom we cherish hostility because Jesus refuses to reckon with such a possibility. By our enemies, Jesus means those who are quite intractable and utterly unresponsive to our love, 
who forgive us nothing when we forgive them all, who requite our love with hatred and our service with derision. Bonhoeffer says the definition of an enemy from the perspective of a Christian. Now listen, that's important this morning. The definition of a Christian, Bonhoeffer says, from the, 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 the definition of an enemy from the perspective of a Christian is someone who holds hostility towards us, not someone we hold hostility towards. Now listen to me. Bonhoeffer says the New Testament doesn't even have a category. The New Testament doesn't even give us liberty to hold the second position, that we are hostile towards someone else, only that people are hostile towards us. My pastor says quite often, my pastor in Atlanta says quite often, a Christian never has the liberty to be unkind. But how hard is this? How difficult is this. Think about how many times we allow hostility in our own lives towards someone else. Now listen, the ways in which we, we, uh, we hate our enemy, it's not always overt hatred, right? It's not, all, it's not overt pursuing with, with antagonistic desires towards other people. Now look, we all know people who are self-enclosed. We all know people who are whores to themselves. We all know people who are whores to other people. But for most of us, our hatred is a little more subtle towards our enemies. And so our hatred typically starts like this. It comes in the form of trying to make ourselves look good, trying to, to make our, our cause look good and, and our enemies look bad. I think maybe the biggest reason why most of us feel the need to make our enemies look bad is that we want to make ourselves and our causes look good. Doesn't that make sense? And so we're tempted to hate someone else as a way of loving ourselves and loving our causes. And when we do so, that sort of makes hatefulness, that sort of makes this idea, this exaggeration, it sort of makes it all feel a little bit virtuous. Does that make sense? But then you begin to start to promote your own side, your, your own agenda, your own part of the issue, and, and the thing that you love, and you try to make that thing look a lot better. But then you begin to talk about your enemies. You begin to talk about their real sins. Of course, you exaggerate your enemies' real sins. But when you do this day after day, what happens is you create for yourself, you create for someone else this image of an enemy as the example of this relentless, irreconcilable evil. Doesn't it seem so easy to hate and to ignore your enemies. And so the question, the natural question to ask here and that Jesus answers is, Pastor Matt, is it, can I even love an enemy? Is it even possible to love an enemy? Jesus says, but I say to you, love your what? Enemies. So it must be possible. It must be possible, but there's a caveat this morning. It's possible. Can I love my enemy? It's possible, but there's a caveat, and it's only possible, listen to me, if Christ has changed your heart. Let me unwind that for just for a moment. Otherwise, there is no inclination to treat your enemies as anything but enemies apart from this outside supernatural force and this change in your life. Listen to a couple of recent headlines. Listen to a couple of recent headlines. Fox News, two Chicago gangbangers executed a nine-year-old in revenge. The Mirror UK, 
Man takes revenge on childhood bully by shooting him dead. These are literally in the last two months. New York Times, hate crime violence hits 16-year high. That just hit the news this week. BBC, Trump hints at payback for evil enemies over Mueller report. The natural inclination of a supernaturally unaffected human heart. Do you understand what I mean? The natural inclination of a supernaturally unaffected heart is retribution, is payback, it's revenge, it's reckoning, it's justice. Listen for a moment to what the gospel tells us about ourselves. This is important. Listen to what the gospel tells us about ourselves. James 4.4, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Philippians 3.18, for as I have often told you before, and now I tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Colossians 1.21, gospel tells us once you were alienated from God, once you were alienated from God and enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 and 2, this is the, the preeminent passage to describe who we are before we met Christ. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of the world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. It's not a very flattering description of ourselves towards God, is it? Not a very flattering description of ourselves towards God. In essence, the Bible here confirms and affirms that apart from a heart changed by God, we are natural enemies of God by our actions, by our affections, by our wills. You say, Pastor Matt, I've never had overt hatred towards God. I know that may not seem to be the case for you, but in the grand scheme of things, in God's accounting system, God sees your sin and he knows that sin has infinitely offended him. But listen to me. Think of the furthest person in your mind for a moment. Think of the furthest person in your mind that you could, that you could choose and to think to love. Just think of that. For some of you, that comes immediately to you. Think, think your most hated enemy. Think about that for just a moment. That was us towards God. That was us towards God. But now listen, this is the beauty of the gospel. But God didn't feel that way towards us. But God did not feel that way towards us, even though we were the vilest of enemies, even though we were the most hated of enemies towards God, God chose to do something not ordinary, not natural, but God chose to do something supernatural and extraordinary. Listen to what the gospel says, Romans 5, 10, for while we were enemies, We were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Listen to Ephesians chapter 2. But because of his great love for us, 
God who is rich in mercy, what did he do? He made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions. It is by grace that you have been saved and God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages, listen to this because you need to internalize this, in order that in the coming ages he might show his incomparable riches of his grace expressed how? The scripture says in his kindness to us in Jesus Christ. So when we were hated enemies towards God, God didn't feel the same way towards us, and he actually took our deadness and he brought it alive. This is, this is Ezekiel chapter 36 actually gives the best picture of what happens to our heart. He says, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you the heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. You understand, pre-Christ, the old heart is alienated from God. After Christ, this new heart is drawn to God with this supreme affection. The old heart is bent towards always wanting to please ourselves, but the new heart, the new heart is spiritually minded. The new heart has peace. The new heart has joy. The new heart has life. A new heart affects an entire change in us. New purposes, new understandings, new desires, new affections. Here's the point. A gospel-affected heart has the potential to do what is unnatural. Loving your enemies is unnatural. But when your heart has been affected by the gospel, you have the potential to do the unnatural. Pastor Tim Keller says, what the heart wants most What the heart most wants, the mind finds reasonable, the will finds doable, the emotions find desirable. A new heart gives us new possibilities. Do you understand that natural love has its limits? Natural love has, natural love means this. Natural love says, I can love someone who loves me. I can love someone who loves me. But listen to me this morning. But supernatural love can take you farther than you imagine. Supernatural love says, I can love someone who does not love me. Can you love your enemies this morning? Yes, but. Yes, but you cannot love your enemies well without a new heart. You cannot love your enemies well without a new heart. Further, when you have this new heart, natural love can become supernatural love. You ever read Philippians 4.13 and said, see, I can be an NBA basketball player? No, that's not what God meant. Philippians 4.13 says, I can do all this. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. That's supernatural strength. That's supernatural love. I can love my enemies because I can do all of this through Jesus who gives me strength. If you're going to love your enemies today, church, it has to be supernatural. It has to be something that God does in you. Can I love my enemies? Yes. But there must be a gospel-affected heart. Now listen, let's move on in the passage here. Jesus is going to tell us, not only can we love our enemies, but he's going to tell us how we can love our enemies. He's going to share how we can love our enemies. Verse 27, let's go back to the beginning. But to you who are listening, I say, love your enemies. Now listen to what Jesus says. He's going to tell us how we can love our enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. 
If someone slaps you on the cheek, turn to them the other also. If someone takes your coat, do not withhold your shirt from them. Verse 30, give to everyone who asks you, and if anyone wants what belongs to you, do not demand it back. Verse 31, the golden rule, do to others as you would have them do to you. And so Jesus is going to answer a second question here. How can I love my enemies? Can I love my enemies? Absolutely, you can. There must be a gospel-affected heart, but how can I love my enemies? He's going to tell us. Listen, there are seven imperatives here in these few verses. You understand what an imperative is? It's a verb. It's action-oriented. Jesus gives seven imperatives here to describe what loving an enemy looks like. Now, hold on just for a moment. These are the seven. He says, do good. He says, bless. He says, pray. He says, turn the cheek. He says, do not withhold. He says, give. He says, do not demand. Well, thanks for the advice, Jesus. (laughs) But honestly, do you even know my situation? I mean, I appreciate the the encouraging talk, Jesus, but do you really know my situation? I don't even know how this is possible. God, have you understood what's going on in my family? Have you understood what's going on in my culture? Jesus here sets up what seems to be an impossible standard. Now, let me read these in real life, can I? Can I read these in real life for you? Let's let's come to 2019 and read these seven imperatives in real life. This is us. This is us. Real life. Bless those who curse you. Not a chance. Forget you. You talk bad about me. I'm going to talk bad about you. Here's the second one. Pray for those who mistreat you. Really? You mistreat me. Listen to me. I'm going to pray for you, but I'm going to pray that God smites you. That's what I'm going to pray for. Offer your other cheek to someone who hits you. Nah, nope, you hit me. I promise, guaranteed, I'm gonna hit you back. How about this? Give to the person who steals from you. Uh Uh-uh, nope, I don't know if you understand, but I have weapons in my home for someone who tries to come and to take from me. Listen, give to the person who asks for money. Maybe some of you respond this way. I'm so annoyed when people ask me for money. Your immediate thought may be, go get a job. Lastly, do good, expecting nothing in return. Nothing in return? No ROI relationship? Really? Well, why should I? Why should, what's the point unless I'm going to get something in return? What's the point unless I'm going to benefit from it somehow? Now, that's real life. That's how, that's how most of us read those and think, thank you, Jesus. But, but really, this is kind of impossible, right? Anybody identify? Can you be honest in church this morning? This is really how I respond to that, Pastor Matt. Well, let me offer some encouragement here. Amen. Let me offer some encouragement here. Jesus is not throwing out some sort of seven-step process here. How to love your enemies. A, bless. B, pray. C, uh, give to. D, don't demand. Seven. I mean, this is not a seven-step process that Jesus is giving us here. As if we read and go, okay, I got it. I'm just going to go do that. Because we all know how we are tempted to respond. But what Jesus is doing here is he's pointing out some very simple things. He's pointing out some very simple things that we can't even do. Why? Because my heart is so selfish. Because I'm so self-centered. 
in order to understand how to love your enemies, we need to play doctor for a moment. Can we play doctor for a moment? There's some of you here who play things that you really aren't on TV, but it's not that complicated. We need to play doctor for a moment. In order to learn how to love our enemies, we have to diagnose the condition of our hearts. That's what Jesus is doing here. That's what Jesus is doing here. He's diagnosing the condition of our heart. He's opening up our hearts. He's exposing our hearts to realize how far short I fail and I fall to the standard that he's giving here. And that's exactly where Jesus wants us to understand. I cannot live up to this standard. So the question is not, who is my enemy? The question is, we try to understand, how can I love my enemies? The question becomes, what is in my heart? What is in my heart? I probably told this story here before, but several, uh, a lot of years ago now, I was in seminary and I uh, had great roommates and uh, I wasn't married at the time. And so it was kind of like a fraternity house at times. It was great, but, but, uh, but at times it wasn't great. And so one of those times we began to notice flies in our, our apartment. Like, where are these flies coming from? And so, and so, you know, as guys are like dismissing, like, just shoot them away, it's all good. And so, but then this goes on for like two or three weeks, and we're like, where are these flies coming from? And so one day, my, my roommate, a uh, great guy, he's, he's, he's um, not very clean though, he's cleaning out his, uh, he's cleaning out his, the area underneath his desk, and he's cleaning out the area underneath his desk. There's this lunch bag with old, rotten fruits. And so that fruit had been there for who knows how long, a month or so. Fruit had just been in, in that bag and it had been, it'd been rotting. I don't know if you know this, but allowing food to rot creates this awful smell. <laughs> it, attracts, it attracts flies when fruit begins to rot. If we really got alone with Jesus and this passage today, if we really got alone with Jesus and allowed this passage to diagnose our hearts today, I think most of us would say, parts of my heart have been rotting for a long time. There's sin rotting in my heart. There's undiagnosed and unconfessed pride and undigested pride. There's years-long anger in my heart. And an honest diagnosis an honest diagnosis may reveal to us today that our hearts are the problem for not being able to love people. The heart, according to the Bible, is a metaphor. It's a metaphor for the seat of the basic orientation of our life. It's the metaphor for our, our deepest commitments that we hold in our life. It's the things that we trust the most. It's the things that we treasure the most. It's the things that we love the most. And so every heart has this inclination, something that is directed towards, something that, that we are bent towards. And so the direction of our hearts, listen to me, church, controls everything in our life. How we think, it controls how we feel, it controls the decisions that we make, it controls the actions that we do, what we love the most, listen to me, what we love the most, we find the most reasonable, we find the most desirable, we find the most doable. What we cherish the most in our hearts, controls the entire person. Now listen to me. In the end, in the end, we always do what our heart loves the most. In the end, we always do what our heart loves the most. Why does that matter? Here's why that matters this morning. 
Because you can't by simply thinking, I'm going to change my thinking about how I think about my enemies. You can't in and of itself change your actions and believe it's going to bring about long lasting results and loving your enemies. Why? Because eventually you're going to come back to what your heart loves. You're going to come back to what your heart loves. So how do we change? We change when we change what we worship the most. We change when we change, can I say it again, what we worship the most. We need to change. That involves feeding our our minds these new beauties and these, these new truths about the gospel so that we begin to love Jesus supremely. Can I give you one of those truths? Let me give you one of those truths. If you have your Bible, skip all the way to verse 35 for a moment. Verse 35, look how the passage ends here in verse 35. Let me give you one of those truths. But love your enemies, do good to them, lend to them without expecting to get anything back, then your reward will be great and you will be children of the Most High. Now here it is. Because he is what? Kind. Because he is kind to the ungrateful. You. Me, before we came to Christ. Because he is kind to the wicked. Look at verse 36. Be merciful just as the Father is merciful. In the accounting system of of God's love, the accounting system of, of God's grace, we all fail. We all fall short, and we all need the mercy of God the Father. You understand what mercy is this morning? You understand what mercy is? Mercy is not getting what we deserve. It's not, it's not, it's not getting what we deserve as, as, as we shout and make a fool of ourselves in, in a gym in front of everybody. It's not getting what we deserve. That is, mercy says you do not get what you deserve. Now think of that in the context of the gospel and what Jesus did for us. He promises us that we can love our enemies. How? If we'll just see that Jesus' own heart was crushed and broken and that he died for us on the cross, not giving us what we deserve. That's mercy. That's mercy. That's dwelling on those things. That's understanding those things. And once we understand what God has done for us, and we believe what God has done for us, and we allow it to seep into our hearts, and it begins to change us, it turns us from the inside out. And that's the kind of change we need in order to love our enemies. Listen to how Tim Keller describes it. This one pastor says, if your fundamental, meaning your deepest held belief, if your your, your deepest held belief is a man dying on a cross for his enemies, if the very heart of your self-image and your religion is a man praying for his enemies as he died for them, as he sacrificed for them, as he loved them, if that sinks into your heart of hearts, it's going to produce the kind of life that the early Christians produced, the most inclusive possible life out of the most exclusive possible claim. And that is this is the truth. But what is the truth? He says the truth. Here it is, church, that God became weak. He became loving, and he was dying for the people who opposed him, dying and forgiving him. Jesus' intent here in Luke chapter 6, Jesus' intent here is for God's love and his mercy to turn us upside down. And he says, when that happens, 
Jesus basically says his love is then what leads us to right action. I want to close this passage this morning. I got a little more, but we're going to, we're going to close it down here. Jesus is going to go on to say here in just a couple verses. He's going to answer, can we love our enemies? He's going to say how we can love our enemies. And he's going to answer why we should love our enemies. And the part that we're going to skip here is, is why we should love our enemies. In essence, it's, it's missional and it's supernatural. And we understand this concept. When we love our enemies, it has this compelling effect on our enemies. And so God calls us not just to live. Listen to me. God calls us not to live just this, this, this moral life. Jesus is going to go on to say even sinners can live moral lives. And then you go over to the book of Matthew where it, it tells this entire story again. And Matthew 5, 47 says, if you greet your brothers, what are you doing out of the ordinary? In other words, God is calling us to something that is just more than moral living. He's calling us to do something extraordinary. And doing something extraordinary is only possible when we've been given a new heart and our heart soaks in the deep truth of the gospel. Now listen to me. When we love our enemies, there's this supernatural demonstration of the gospel. There's this supernatural demonstration of love that has a drawing effect. It has a, a compelling effect. Don't forget the context here. Jesus is sending out men and women to announce, to authenticate the kingdom of God, the message of God, that God is near, and he came to save and serve humanity. And this, this opportunity to love our enemies has this, this ability to draw those who were once the most hated enemies into the kingdom of God. I think one of the most compelling examples I've probably ever seen of this forgiving love, of an act of forgiveness towards someone who, who most would probably be considered an enemy, happened in a courtroom just a few months ago. And this lady was on trial, you probably know the story. She's on trial for murdering a young man who was sitting in his apartment, an innocent young man sitting in his apartment, eating ice cream. During that trial, Botham Jean's brother, Brent Jean, sat in the box and he said, if you truly are sorry, I know I can speak for myself. I forgive you. And I know if you go to God and ask him, he will forgive you. Again, I'm speaking for myself, not even on behalf of my family, but I love you. Just like anyone else, I'm not going to say I hope you rot and die, just like my brother did. But I personally, listen to what he says. I personally want the best for you. Listen, church. Listen, loving your enemies is not simply forgiving them of their sins. It's wanting the best for them. That's supernatural. That's extraordinary. 
Maybe you're sitting here thinking today, I don't see how that's possible. Well, it's only possible when God changes your heart and you believe and you soak in and you live in the gospel every single day. He says, I don't even want you to go to jail. I want the best for you because I know that's exactly what Botham would want you to do. And the best would be, listen to what he says, give your life to Christ. I think giving your life to Christ would be the best thing Botham would want you to to do. And when he finishes talking, he looks at the judge and he says, can, can I hug her? Can I hug her? Please, can I hug her? And you see this moment in the courtroom. This man who probably rightfully could say, she's the enemy. This woman who a lot of people probably would say, she's the enemy. I'm not talking about justice. She, their justice needs to be done and served in this situation. I'm talking about loving someone and wanting the best for them, even when they could be considered enemies. Some of you look at that today and you think, I don't think it's possible for me. Well, it's not possible unless you've received the forgiveness in the love of Jesus Christ to change your heart. Until today, if you've never received Jesus, trusted Jesus with your life, God's been your enemy. You say, I've never been overtly, hey, hey, I've never had overt hatred towards God, Pastor Matt. No, no, no. You don't understand the depths of your sin has so alienated you from God. And yet God and his love and his mercy and his grace towards us while we were dead in our trespasses loved us when he went to the cross on our behalf and he died for us. And he's making that offer to you today. Have you ever trusted your life to Jesus? Have you ever given yourself to Jesus? Today, I want to ask you to believe the gospel, trust in the gospel, for Jesus to give you a brand new heart, something magical or mystical about that. We don't embarrass you. We don't make you stand on the stage and do anything you don't want to do, say anything you don't want to say. Simply has... We give you this moment where you can do some business with the Lord and you acknowledge before God, God, I'm a sinner. My sin has offended you, but God, I know you love me. And God, you you proved that love for me. You provided a solution for my sin when you proved that love for me on the cross. And today, Jesus, I trust in that forgiving, cleansing love on the cross. And today, I believe not I ought to be, can be, might be, but I will be saved. And if you have that moment in this auditorium today, Jesus can take your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh and all things become possible. I can do all things to Christ who now strengthens me. Have you ever given your life to Jesus? Seriously, I'm not talking about religion today. I'm not talking about coming to church. I'm not talking about giving a tithe. I'm, I'm gut level honest. Have you ever been saved today? Give your life to Jesus. Give your life to Jesus. I want you to bow your heads and close your eyes. I'm going to pray for us. We're going to sing a song. One last announcement, but I don't don't want you to miss this moment that God has given you. You never trusted your life to Jesus. I want to ask you to do something today. Down front, to my right, your left, Marco, one of our staff members. You've never given your life to Jesus. You don't have to say anything except come down and say, I want to know more about giving my life to Jesus, trusting my life to Jesus. Marco would love to help you enter into that relationship with Jesus this morning. Please don't miss this moment that God has given you. Now, secondly, can I say to all of you in this room who are believers, I'm confident and not unaware 
that this is one of the most difficult passages Jesus is going to say to us. And I'm confident today, some of you are sitting there still because you know there's hatred towards someone in your life, family member, a boss. God is calling you to reflect and remember, to trust, to believe in the mercy of the cross. He didn't give you what you deserved. When your heart begins to soak in that, it begins to change you from the inside out. I'm not calling you to walk across an auditorium today and speak to anybody. I'm calling you to come to Jesus. Come to the foot of the cross. Bring your heart to Jesus and say, Jesus, I need you to do something in my heart. I want to pray for you. Jesus, God, what a difficult saying, what a difficult teaching, what a difficult passage today. God, we do believe all things are possible through you and in you. God, today there's some hurting people in this auditorium that the scripture has convicted. It's cut our hearts today. There's some people here who have been grieving years of relationships that have gone bad because they have enemies. God, today, would you begin the repairing work of the gospel on our hearts? Suture up our hearts, Lord, today. Draw us to you, God. Change us from the inside out today, God. And then for those who don't know you, God, let them not leave this auditorium without assurance of salvation, knowing you offer the opportunity for a changed life and a new heart. In Jesus' name we pray.